You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Someone apologized to me this morning about the poor weather in Birmingham, but yesterday in Chicago it snowed six inches, so this is a delight to me. And I need to forewarn you about the nature of this sermon. I was at the airport. I was, uh, my flight was canceled fairly early in the day, and my wife and I desperately were looking for another flight to Birmingham that wasn't going to cost $1,000. And uh, we ended up switching airports we were looking at and ended up finding an American Airlines flight that was coming down here about the same time I was supposed to leave anyway. Uh, when I arrived this morning, my wife texted, when I woke up this morning, my wife texted me, oh, by the way, a thousand flights got canceled in Chicago yesterday out of O'Hare. So I think it's an act of God that I'm here today, which means the sermon is intended for somebody here, I'm sure. In the beginning, the American evangelical movement and American church uh, Christianity at large got a kickstart with the revival in the 1730s and 1740s, which is called the Great Awakening. Here's how the theologian Jonathan Edwards uh, described what he saw. In the spring and summer following 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor joy, and yet so full of distress, mostly spiritual distress, as uh, he means by that, uh, the need to repent, to become right with God. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house, in all companies on other days or on whatever occasion persons met together. Christ was to be heard, he said, and seen in their midst. Evangelical faith soon became characterized by a lively, personal relationship with God, grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, with a deep and abiding trust in God's word as uh, something that can transform us, and with an active desire to spread the gospel to others. Now, we cannot live year by year with the level of enthusiasm we find in revivals, but one does wonder today what exactly characterizes evangelical faith or American Christianity in general. Sometimes people say it's, for some, the Republican Party at prayer, others the Democratic Party at prayer. Sometimes it's associated with sexual scandal, sometimes with legalism, sometimes with proselytizing, sometimes with social justice, and on it goes. It seems, however, that No one characterizes evangelical Christians or American Christians in general as Jonathan Edwards did, as people full of the presence of God. This suggests to me uh, a serious crisis in the American church. Now, at the risk of hubris and the risk of merely adding one more item to the seemingly endless list of crises pundits say they describe about the church, let me suggest a crisis which I believe lies at the heart of many of these other crises that uh, ail the church. Alexander Solzhenitsyn named it in his speech upon receiving the Templeton Prize in Religion in 1968. He was talking about Western culture when he used it. I apply it to the American church, evangelical and not. As he put it, we have forgotten God. Now, 
It seems absurd to say that we have forgotten God when God is on our lips so much of the time. Now, while the numbers are slightly down from previous decades, American Christians worship, pray, read their Bibles, and say religion is very important in polls, significantly more uh, than people in other developed nations do. If anything, we talk about God so much, many in our larger culture are sick of God talk, especially when his name is evoked in the public square to champion this cause or that. So how can I say that we have forgotten God? Well, you'll have, uh, warning, shameless promotion coming, you'll have to buy my book next year to hear my argument about exactly why I think that. Um, but let me today and tomorrow uh, simply picture what the church looks like when it hasn't forgotten God. And then one can infer from that in comparison that we have probably forgotten God. If, as I believe, we have forgotten our first love, what does that first love look and feel like? A church that has not forgotten God exhibits one particular characteristic, a desire for God, a desire so intense that sometimes it looks like drunkenness or even madness. And the place to go looking for this picture, of course, is scripture. The most vivid example of desire for God, of course, is King David. David was known as a man of action, a military leader, a nation's king, so busy with the affairs of state. But the one characteristic that seems to have earned him the label, a man after God's own heart, even in spite of his uh, dalliance with Bathsheba, was the fact that he was a man who sought God with all his heart. Psalm 63 expresses this most eloquently. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. I praise you. Of course, David isn't the only psalmist to earn, to yearn for God's palpable presence. Psalm 42, written by someone known as a descendant of Korah, that psalm famously begins, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for the living God. Examples could be expounded all through the psalms, as any reader of the psalms knows. The psalmists were driven by a desire to know God, not just to do his will, not to just to know his will, not just to be wise, not just to be righteous, but to know God, to be with God, to bask in his presence. In fact, this over-the-top drive to know and love God is found often in Scripture. We see it in Isaiah the prophet in chapter 42. We read, in the night I search for you, in the morning I earnestly seek you. We see it in Paul. He says, Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. And we see it in Jesus' life and ministry. Not in his yearning to be one with God, that would be absurd for the one in whom God fully dwelled to yearn for that, but in his teaching especially in what he said was the greatest commandment. 
You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That pretty much covers the emotional, physical, spiritual, and mental landscape of human life. To put it another way, Jesus calls us to become monomaniacs for God. Now people like me, who strive to keep my emotions in check, who navigate life on an even keel, who take things in stride, People like me, we only try to squirm out of this by saying that this first and greatest commandment is merely about obeying God's commands. We demonstrate our love for him by doing what he asks us to do, like caring for others in practical ways, doing favors for friends, listening attentively to a co-worker, serving at the food pantry, maybe even standing in a prayer vigil at an abortion clinic or joining a protest march against racial injustice. Doing stuff that helps others, that's what it means to love God. Well, of course, that's certainly part of it. But here's the rub. Jesus didn't say that loving the neighbor is the way we show love of God. He said the first commandment is to love God, and then he announced the second commandment as if it were in a different category, to love others. That was not a commentary on the first commandment, I don't think. Add to that the unique character of the first commandment. There is something extraordinary about the love of God that doesn't apply to love of neighbor. We're commanded to love God with a complete range of human emotion, with a full measure of spiritual fervor, with unending intellectual effort, with every calorie of energy. Jesus, yes, as was his custom, is trafficking in hyperbole because if we were to love God like that, we wouldn't have time for the neighbor. But the point is made. Jesus is simply putting into command form the passion eloquently expressed in the Psalms, like Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. This is the deep and an abiding desire he calls us to nurture. Now, Scripture employs a variety of metaphors to help us appreciate the intensity and the wonder of this desire. We'll talk about one today and one tomorrow. One set traffics in the idea of bodily nourishment, hunger and thirst. We've already seen that in the Psalms. We see this first in the Exodus account where Moses drives home one lesson from the miracle of manna. He turns to the people and says, God humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did this to teach you that people do not live by bread alone, but live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And this, of course, is the very verse Jesus quotes when tempted by Satan to break his fast. But it isn't the only time Jesus employed this metaphor. On one occasion, he was explaining to a crowd that in the desert his father was responsible for feeding the Israelites with bread from heaven. But now he offers the true bread from heaven. To this his listeners reply, well give us that bread every day. Now, In response Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty his listeners start to become increasingly disturbed by this sort of teaching. And Jesus only doubles down, saying something 
that no doubt shook them. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Wow. That is a violent, frankly, cannibalistic illusion meant to shock them into a deeper reality. That is the intense and personal nature of our union with God. As much as food and drink nourish and sustain us and become part of our physical bodies, so Jesus can sustain, nurture, and become one with us. And if we want such an intimate and life-sustaining union, we will hunger and thirst for it like nothing else. There's one problem here. Most of us reading such words live in lands of abundance. So the biblical metaphor doesn't quite register. Our pangs of hunger, well, they needn't last for more than a few minutes. Within ready reach, in a refrigerator or a store or a vending machine or maybe in a pocket where we keep our snacks is something to nourish us. Hunger is for us merely an inconvenience, food and entertainment. We watch reality TV shows that revel in the abundance of food and the creativity of chefs and some of us pride ourselves in being foodies. But the biblical writers knew very little of this cultural phenomenon. It was not uncommon for them to endure periods of drought or famine. Food was not a hobby. It wasn't about satisfying cravings. It was a matter of life and death. They would much more likely identify with the sufferers of modern-day famines. The writer Christopher Hitchens back in the day described one such famine on a trip he took to North Korea. He writes, In the fields, you can see people picking up loose grains of rice and kernels of corn, gleaning every scrap. They look pinched and exhausted. In the few dingy restaurants in the city and even in the few modern hotels, you can read the Pyong Times, Pyongyang Times through the soup, the tea, or the coffee. Morsels of inexplicable fat or gristle are served up as duck. One evening I gave in and tried a bowl of dog stew, which at least tasted hearty and spicy, but then I found my appetite crucially diminished by the realization that I hadn't seen a domestic animal, not even the merest cat, in the whole time I was there. To hunger and thirst for God in the biblical sense is to be absolutely desperate for God. The psalmist, among others, believes he is starved, dehydrated without God. One whose skin sucks on his bones and exposes his skeleton. Whose listlessness despairs, fuels his despair. Who scours the ground for even a single grain of divine rice. The psalmist so desires to know God and his love. And here's where the, where the metaphor is ironically transcended. The psalmist so desires to know God and his love. He says, it is better than life itself. That's enough for us to ponder today. You don't have to be a seasoned theologian to see why, in comparison, I might say we have forgotten God. 
Tomorrow we will take up another biblical metaphor for this over-the-top yearning for God, as well as one paradoxical dynamic of this yearning. But in the meantime, we might each examine our hearts, and if you're like me, what I must do daily is repent that I don't have a greater yearning for God, and pray for a fresh instilling of this desperate hunger for God as we make our way through Holy Week. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.